Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You know, I remember many years ago now, our nephew came to stay with us for a while. And so it was going to be his first day at school at Little Fork, Big Falls here. And he came up for breakfast and he was dressed in yellow. I mean, from head to toe, yellow, yellow shirt, yellow pants, yellow everything. And we were like, uh, wow, might want to rethink that. Go with a little more of a less is more approach might be more beneficial for you. And, and he says, no, no. He's determined. He says, no, this is what I'm going to wear. He says, I want to be noticed. And I said, you're in a small community and you're the new kid. Everybody's going to notice you no matter what you have on. You really might want to rethink this. But he was determined. And, well, I'll just say he was noticed. But, you know, it's important to all of us how we enter a new environment or how we enter a room. You know, some people like attention and they, and they want to be noticed and they want to be recognized and they want to be approached. And, and other people are more, that's kind of the nightmare for them to be approached and noticed and things like that as well. And, and so uh, some people are more, they feel a little more comfortable holding back and kind of they need some time to settle in. And you know what, actually, when I think about it, all of us, we're probably a little bit different in different situations. Obviously, if you walk in the door uh, with, amongst family or friends, it's different than if you walk into an environment that you're not familiar with and you're not really know your way around yet or not familiar with the people that you're dealing with there. And so we even can vary from time to time in how we feel comfortable or uncomfortable entering a room or, an in, or a situation. The reason I bring that up is because that's what we're actually seeing with Jesus. We're seeing a change. If you look at his ministry leading up to this point, he has kind of stayed in a little bit of obscurity. Now, they do call the biggest part of his ministry his year of popularity. It's a year and a half of his ministry, right in the middle of his three-year ministry. That's where he's gaining crowds and people are coming to see the miracles and they're coming to hear what he has to say. But you know, he often during those times would withdraw. He would withdraw to a secret place and he would leave the crowds behind Even though he was drawing a crowd, it looked like at times he was kind of pushing away from it a little bit. In fact, sometimes he would heal somebody or do a miracle, and then he would tell the person that he healed, don't tell anybody about this. And there were times where they wanted to take him and make him the king because of what he was doing, and he would slip away and he would get away. And In fact, even his last six months of his ministry, he left the populated areas and went farther up north, and it seems to have just been kind of six months mostly devoted to teaching his apostles teaching those twelve, training them for the things that they were going to be encountering, the ministry that they would continue as he left. But then a change takes place. It's time to leave the Northland in the seclusion with his apostles. 
and it's time to go to Jerusalem. And he knows he's headed toward the cross. And now it's different because now all along the way, it's like the, the whole trail is just lined with miracles. And so then when he gets to Jerusalem, rather than coming in quiet, he's coming into town with fanfare and people are putting their coats in front of him and the palm branches in front of him and they're saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This time when he comes in, they're shouting the hosannas, the songs of praise and adoration to him as he comes in as Israel's king. So in the past where he would slip away if they wanted to try to make him king or, or he would tell them, don't tell anybody about this. or None of that now. It has some stark contrast to the entrance of other leaders because he's coming in humbly, riding on a donkey. But Jesus, when he comes in at this point, it is very announced as he comes in. And that's what we want to consider this morning. And we want to consider the idea of what it means when Christ enters your life. Because that's what he's doing with Israel. He's coming into Israel as his nation, as his chosen people, coming in as their Messiah and presenting himself to them. What does it mean to our life when He enters our life? Well, there's four characteristics within this experience that I want us to probe a little bit. The first uh, that we see is that He is in control. It says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He's quoting here from Zechariah. And so, in other words, he's quoting from an Old Testament prophet. He's quoting a passage that is hundreds of years old. And he says, this is, this is what's taking place right now. It's a fulfillment of this which was told you hundreds of years ago what was going to take place. And now this is happening. And that's what we see is that we see that Christ is in control. How do we know He's in control? Well, we know He's in control for several reasons. The first of which that we see in this passage is that He's there in fulfillment of Scripture. He is fulfilling Exactly what God predicted that He would do those hundreds of years ago. But not only that, we see His control in, in several different ways. We see His control in the fact that, one, He's able to ride on this colt. To be able to ride on a colt that nobody's ever sat on, it means it's not been broken. And He's going to ride this colt that has not been broken through a crowd that is going to be shouting praise and, and waving palm branches and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of commotion. And he's just going to ride peacefully on this colt down the road. Now, I think that's significant. And that's what uh, Don Carson points out in his commentary. He says, In the midst of all this, an unbroken young animal remains totally calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls nature and stills the storm. This even points to the, to the peace of the consummated kingdom. Jesus is the Lord of all, and under His hand, nothing but harmony and peace comes about. The animal knows and loves his true Master for who He is. This is a foreshadowing of the healing and completion of all nature as found in Isaiah 11, the wolf shall live with the lamb. That is, I think, nothing short of miraculous that He's able to ride this thing calmly into Jerusalem. Kind of like we're going to see in the kingdom when Christ has sets up His kingdom on this earth and the, the lion's going to lay down with the lamb and the, and the child is going to play with poisonous snakes and not be bit. And creation is going to be at harmony. I think that's part of the picture that's given with this colt as Jesus comes in on this unbroken colt, but it's totally at peace. People are waving branches and everything and it's not, it's not spooking. The Master is here and there's a harmony within creation when He's on the throne. And that's what's being presented to the nation of Israel. Well, not only do we see 
that he fulfills Scripture, showing that he's in control. He's able to ride this unbroken colt as shows that he's in control. He also predicts several things that demonstrate his being in control as well. One of the things that he predicts is his own death. From Matthew chapter 16 up to 21, Jesus predicts three times that he's going to go and he's going to be put to death by the leaders and he's going to rise again from the dead in victory over the grave. He also foretells the betrayal of Judas. He also predicts a denial of Peter. He tells them actually that all the apostles are going to forsake him. And Peter says, I'm not leaving you. I'm not going anywhere. He says, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. That, of course, is exactly what happened. He also predicts future events. Because when we get up into the latter chapters of Matthew, he tells them how the future events, the end times events are going to unfold. And so we see that Jesus is in control. You know what? When He enters your life, He's in control. He's got things in hand. And you know what? There's in times in our lives when we feel a little out of control. And that's when it's time to just rest in His control. Well, not only is He in control, but we also see within this passage that He is celebrated. As He's coming riding into Jerusalem, the crowd just starts to gather. And they're excited. I'm sure that they've been anticipating it. Because as I said, on His journey from up north coming down, He's been doing all these miracles along the way. And you know how news travels. And not only that, it's the holiday season, right? It's the Passover time. And so Israel is celebrating their deliverance from Egypt. And, and so it's an exciting time and pilgrim, people are making a pilgrimages to Jerusalem to come and celebrate this. And it's like happening kind of like at our Christmas time, if you want to think about it that way. And so everybody's kind of excited and then you hear He's coming and you're looking forward to seeing the miracles. And then He gets there and people just begin to celebrate. But in their celebration... They claim Him to be who He is. That Deliverer that they've long been anticipating. And the religious leaders take exception to it. And they say, don't you hear what these people are saying about you? They're claiming you to be nothing short of God. And Jesus answers them this way. He says, if they keep silent, the rocks themselves will cry out. You know, Jesus, because of who He is, is to be celebrated. Is to be praised. Those miracles demonstrate who He is. That's why they were taking place. And so the natural response to that is to celebrate that. There's a couple times in the Bible that I think of that just really stand out to me as moments of praise. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, Isaiah gets a little glimpse of the throne room of God. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. If there's anybody in the whole world that has a really accurate picture of who God is, that is in that throne room. And what is their response to who God is? They just keep crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And the earth is full of His glory. Revelation, we see a similar instance. In Revelation chapter 4, verses 6-8, through 8, and this is when the Apostle John, the vision first starts, and he gets a glimpse at the throne room of God. It says, Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, and the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third like living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. When they're in the presence of God, they just can't help but being so enamored with who He is that they just keep singing this over and over. 
sometimes I feel like you know our praise songs do that. A lot of our praise songs get especially toward the end of the song and they'll just keep saying the same thing over and over and over and over. And you know what? I tend to lose patience with it. If it's on a CD, then I'll hit the skip button. Or if it's on your phone or something, I'll hit the skip to the next song thing. Because, alright, I've got, I've got it. Let's go on. You know what? Sometimes it's a weakness on my part, I think. Because I see this song. Holy, holy, holy. And then it's the Lord God Almighty. So one word repeated several times and just a few words following it. And that's apparently all that they're singing over and over and over again. But here's the thing. It's not like the record got a skip in it. Or the disc got a scratch. It's not just on repeat. These are actual living beings that are in the presence of God and they're just so enamored with Him that they're just singing it over and over and over. But it's like it's as fresh to them as it was the first time that they said it. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to be singing that song in heaven forever and ever. I don't know. But I know that one thing that is amazing to me is that God must be some kind of God if He incites that response in a being. That those creatures are so enamored with who God is that they just can't help themselves. Can you imagine what life must be like in a state of being impressed totally forever? They are just completely enamored with who God is. And they never stop being enamored with who God is. God has got to be one kind of an amazing being to evoke that kind of a response from these creatures. Well, not only do we see that he's in control and that he's celebrated, but we also see that he is confrontational. It's kind of like the whole trip down from the north coming in and doing all these miracles, boom, 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 along the way, and then into Jerusalem. To be honest, it's kind of like he's picking a fight. Now he's coming down and he's marching right in the front door and you've got to deal with him. He's not avoiding anybody this time. He's not saying, it's not my time anymore. Remember before, he would say that occasionally. He would say, you know what, it's, it's not my time yet. Now is not my time. It's not my moment. It's not my hour. But now, he's like, now it's time. And so now when he comes back into Jerusalem, he is just right there in front of him. He's not hiding. He's not going anywhere. And we run into one confrontation after another. The very next thing that we see after the passage that we read, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, what does He do? He goes right into the temple. And it says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. They're selling animals and they're exchanging money in there because people are traveling from all over the place to come there and to worship. And uh, you got to have a sacrifice when you get there for the Passover. So rather than travel with a sacrifice with an animal, you just, uh, a lot of people would just travel there and then buy one when they got there. Well, you can imagine, uh, kind of like uh, what look what lumber prices have done during COVID. They kind of shoot up because of the demand. Well, that's what happens too. Israel's leaders got uh, got the flock of sheep and they got them right in the temple courts and they got kind of a corner on the market. They got control of the market. People are coming from all over the place. The demand's high. The price goes up. They're making a lot of money on these animals. They're also dealing with currency. You had to pay your temple tax at that time of year and that had to be given in Israel's currency. And so if people are exchanging money to get the kind of money they needed to pay their temple tax, and so they would do that too. And then the exchange rates, of course, would be fluctuate and they'd make money on that too. Jesus comes in and He flips over all the tables. He challenges them. And then what does He do? He begins to heal. He begins to heal people right there. Now why? Well, one reason is because the people need to be healed. And he's compassionate. I don't think that's all of it. Jesus isn't going to make it easy on the leaders. He's presenting themselves as the king. He clears out his temple. He clears out his temple and then he sets up shop and there he starts to heal these people and to care for his people as the king should do. 
And what does that do to the religious leaders? Now he's right in the middle and he's getting more and more popular, more and more people flocking to him. And so it pushes it to a point. Jesus is not letting them back out of this one. It's, it's escalating. And then it's going to escalate even farther. Later on in the chapter, he curses a fig tree. And later on, as they come out of the city to where they're lodging, as they come back out of there, they come by the fig tree again, and the fig tree is withered up and dead. And they're like, what is the deal? Well, what is Jesus doing? He, he, he curses the fig tree because a fig tree is showing a sign of life, a sign of fruitfulness, but there's no fruitfulness. It's a direct condemnation of Israel's leadership and Israel's spiritual condition at that time that they were showing all kinds of signs of spiritual fruit, but no reality of spiritual fruit. They could make themselves look godly, but it was just show. It was hypocrisy. In fact, Jesus begins to, to teach in parables. He tells a story of two sons and He says, look, a guy had two sons and he, he comes up and he tells one son, go out in my field and work. And, and the one son says, okay, Dad, I'll do it. But then he never goes. He never does it. And then he goes up to another son and he says, look, son, go out in my field and work. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it. But then after his dad leaves, he feels, you know what, that was wrong. I should have done it. And he goes out in the field and work. He says, which of the two sons did his father's bidding? And what is he doing? He's saying, look, you religious leaders, you guys are the, oh, I'm doing the work of God. I'll do it, Father. But then you never do it. But the publicans and the sinners, they were the ones that were like, no, I'm living my life the way I want to. Afterwards, then they repented of that and they, and they got on board and they are doing the will of God. And, and he says, that's them. And so he's, he's showing the, the religious leaders, he says, look, you guys, you guys think you're the obedient son. You're not. You're a fake obedient son. The publicans and the sinners are the ones that are getting on board. They're the ones that are repenting of their sins. And getting their life on track. You know, then he tells a, a story about the parable of the tenants. That one's like a guy that owns a vineyard and he leases it out to tenants. And every year the tenants at the harvest time, they're supposed to take of the crop. And of course they get some of it and then they're supposed to pay the lease arrangement to the owner of the, of the vineyard. And so it comes time for that to be paid and he sends his servant to go collect what he's owed from the vineyard. Some of them they beat him and send him back. Some of them they kill. And finally, the guy's like, what am I going to do? He says, you know what I'll do? I'll send my son. Because my son's not just a servant. He's an heir. He's the heir. He's the owner. They'll respect my son and I'll send my son to them. And what happens? They see the son coming in the distance and they say, he's the heir. If we kill him, it's all ours. What can be done? And so they kill the son. And Jesus said, when that guy comes after they kill his son, what is their condition? They're going to be underneath his wrath. And Jesus' point to them is very clear. You guys are the tenants. You're the religious leaders. We're supposed to be keeping God's vineyard, God's people. But you found positions of power for yourself and you tried to squeeze out God. And he sent servants, the prophets. He sent the prophets to you. And which of the prophets is Israel not either beaten or killed? And finally, he's sending his son. And there's Jesus, the son. And he's saying, you're going to do with me what you will. You're going to kill me just like the son in the story. And that's exactly what they do. So you see, Jesus, in all these parables, He's confronting them. And then you even get a little bit farther. Chapter 23, He begins to pronounce these woes upon the religious leaders. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, you hypocrites. He pronounces seven different woes to them. Uh, with each time that He pronounces a woe upon them, He calls them a hypocrite. Five different times he refers to them as blind within the passage. And so Jesus at this point is just, he's not even doing with a story now. By this time, he's just telling them plain, simple words. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, you hypocrites. And so Jesus is confronting them for their hardness of heart. He's, he's confronting them 
with their sinfulness. If He's going to be crowned as King, then He's got to wear the crown. He's going to be in charge. And they are not willing to let go of their being in charge. And Jesus is not going to find a middle ground. Tim Keller put it this way. says Jesus says, crown me or kill me, but I will not be liked. I think that's a fairly accurate description of what we see happening. Jesus, this time, He's not going away. He's not going to go into more obscure places. He's not going to slip away. He's not going to go back north. This time, it's coming to a head. But you know what? That's the same with our life. In our life, Jesus is going to wear the crown or we're not going to follow Him. He is the Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And He's not going to settle for a lesser place in our life. He's not going to just go along to get along. He demands our submission, our loyalty, our following of Him. Now, I'm not saying He's not patient with us, because He is patient. He brings us along, but He is ever bringing us along. And that's why a lot of times when you read Scriptures or listen to a sermon or, or involved in a Bible study, there's parts of the Word of God that sting. I saw a statement on Facebook. I can't remember who posted it. That basically said this. says, if the Lord never disagrees with you, maybe you're worshiping a version of yourself. And I thought, you know what? That's often one of my greatest fears is that I'll get things all cemented in mind, how, my mind how they, how they are or whatever and that uh, what I, and they won't be accurate to who God is. And so I end up really basically worshiping a, a, a Greg between the lines version of who God is. Because the fact of the matter is, is He's not following me. I'm following Him. And sometimes I can veer off a little bit and I need to be brought back. And that's what Jesus is. He's coming in as the King. He's confronting the status quo. He's saying, look, some of the things that are going on here, this isn't right. And, uh, and He's challenging it. And there's a definite decision that has to be made on Israel's part. Is He going to wear the crown or are we? And the same thing has to happen with us. We have to make conscious decisions. Not just one, but regularly. Who's going to wear the crown? Who's going to call the shots? Well, lastly, is that we see that not only is he in control, not only is he celebrated, not only is he confrontational, he will kind of get up in your grill for what you're doing wrong. He is confusing. I think it's important for us to deal with this. Sometimes, if you've ever felt confused by your faith, that's okay. Sometimes when we, when we get confused by something, we feel like something's wrong. We need to find an answer. We need to and look for an answer. It's a good thing to do to look for an answer. But if you get confused by your faith from time to time, you're in good company. You know, I see a lot of confusion. I see it when Jesus comes riding into town on this donkey and people are laying their coats down in front of Him. And at the end of the week, the crowd in Jerusalem is yelling, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! I'm like, what happened? You'd think that would have to contain some of the same people. And if it doesn't contain some of the same people, where's the first group? When they're, when some are yelling, crucify him, crucify him, where's the Hosanna crowd? Right? Where's the, where's the counter protest? (laughs) Either one thing has happened that the Hosanna group became the crucify him group later in the same week, or the Hosanna group stayed home when the crucify him group showed up. And I'm not sure exactly which it happened, or maybe a little bit of both. But at either rate, I asked the same question. What, what happened? You were out here laying your coats on the ground, and now you're either yelling crucify Him, or you're staying home. You're not showing up. 
If, if, if He was enough for you to show up and lay your coat on the ground for Him to ride a donkey over it on the way into town four days earlier, then isn't He also worth showing up for when people are yelling, crucify Him? To stand up for Him or whatever? And you know what I think it is? I think that the reason is they're confused. They expected a, a kingdom like they're used to seeing a kingdom. Like with Caesar ruling a kingdom in the Roman Empire. Like people under him even with the Herods that ran the part of the kingdom and, and with Pilate now that is, that is running part of the kingdom. and They're used to seeing that kind of running of a kingdom. And so what they anticipated was that Jesus would come in, chase Rome out of there, and they would be their own entity again. They would be, not be underneath Roman rule anymore. They would be liberated from Rome just like they were liberated from Egypt back in the, back in the day of Moses. But Jesus said that's not the form the Ten Kingdom is taking just yet. That is what's going to happen eventually when Jesus comes back a second time. But we're not there yet. And you know what? You can find passages in the Old Testament that talk about Christ suffering and dying for our sins and stuff too. But you know what Israel did over the years? They looked forward to this Messiah coming and liberating them from their enemies. And they ignored the passages dealing with Him suffering and dying. Why? Probably because they couldn't really fit them together. How do these things come together? We see this deliverer coming and suffering. He was wounded for our transgressions. How can He do that and liberate us from our enemies at the same time? So they ignored that kind of side of it and they focused on the kingdom and that's what they were waiting for. We see it in the apostles. The apostles asked Jesus relentlessly, are you now going to set up your kingdom? When you set up your kingdom, can one of us sit on your right hand and the other one sit on your left? Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? That's the way the apostles were approaching it. That's the way Israel saw it. So when Jesus came riding in, but came in on a donkey, I'm sure they're celebrating Him, but you'd think, boy, they've got to be thinking a little bit, what, what the donkey? Well, I don't, but it was fulfillment of Scripture. But they're not getting the guy that's going to go kicking out Rome right now. And I think it confused them. I think they didn't know what to do with it because of this picture they already had in their mind. Not only do we see the, the confusion in them, but the confusion in the, in the apostles. Jesus would tell the apostles, you're going to be scattered tonight because of Me. And they did. The disciples, they scattered. They went back to fishing. They hid. They ran. Why? I think because they're confused. It wasn't what they were picturing either. As I read through the Gospels, I find a lot of things that are encouraging and strengthening in a lot of ways that I'm corrected and need to work on things and change and that kind of stuff. You know what? I find times too in the life of Jesus with Answers that he gives to questions, the teachings he loves. There's sometimes where I just look through it and I'm like, I just, I just don't know what to think of that. I'm just a little confused. And you know what? That's okay. Because, again, we're following him. We're learning of him. We don't have all the answers. He has all the answers. We're the ones in pursuit of those answers because we're in pursuit of him. When I come to one of these confusing moments, and I'm not sure how to look at things. I'm not sure if I'm seeing things correctly or accurately. I'm not sure why God is letting this or that into my life or, or, or why I'm going through something that I'm going through. At that point, I just try to focus on trust. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything He does. And that's why, you know, at those confusing times, I just try to Make sure that those, that my confusion even pushes me toward faith. Pushes me toward trust. 
Because I can look at things and I say, you know what, Lord, I don't know what's going on with this. I'm not sure what I should do in this situation. And I'll dig into it in His Word to try to figure out what I should do. And I'll dig into His Word to try to figure out uh, what what's going on or how to look at these things. But there's times when I'm just like, God, I don't know what You're doing here and I don't know what the plan is. But you know what? I'm sure of one thing. I'm sure that You've got everything in order and it's going to be okay. You've got me in Your hand. And as Tim Keller said, if you knew everything that God does, which we're so far from that, you would ask for exactly what He's given you. Well, as we consider that idea, as we look at Israel and and Christ coming into the life of the nation of Israel as He comes in and presents Himself as King, and as we look at our own lives and consider what it means for Christ to be on the throne in our life, well, it means that He's in control. He's got this. We've seen it through the fulfilling of Scripture and through his predictions that he's made and, and even the calming of that little cult that he would come riding in this tumultuous time. He's in control. We also see that he's celebrated and, and we participate in that in celebrating who he is as he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We see that he's confrontational. When things don't line up in our life, he's going to confront us on those things. We need to step in line and follow him. He's the King. And at times, it's going to be confusing. The, disciple, the disciples, as I look at it, reading through the Gospels, they were often confused. But He just keeps leading them along, pulling them along. Let even your confusion result in a greater faith.